Welcome to Cutting Edge Web Content Development, the podcast where we delve into the world of CMS systems and their crucial role in website and web content development. In each episode, we'll explore the reasons why founders, CEOs, CTOs, and CMOs of web content development companies need CMS systems to thrive in the digital landscape. Get ready to uncover the secrets behind successful website management, content creation, and seamless user experiences. Here's your host, Jonathan Ames. Welcome to Cutting Edge Web Content Development, a podcast by Butter CMS. Here we share insights on the intersection of content and web development and how you can align these two often competing forces to improve efficiency and business results. Joining me today are Karen McGrain, who has spent the last 25 years revolutionizing the way we interact with the internet, and Jeff Eaton of Autogram. So Karen and Jeff, I'll let you guys introduce yourselves after that. Thank you very much for that very kind introduction. So I'm Karen McGrain. I have a long history in doing web design and UX work. I have a graduate degree in HCI that I got in the late 90s and was the first person with an UX background, usability background, hired at the digital agency Razorfish back in 1997. So I led the user experience practice there for a while. I was founded the information architecture practice. And when I left, I was the VP of national lead for UX. Ever since then, I've been independent doing consulting projects with clients. I used to joke that I have dragged more magazines kicking and screaming onto the internet than I could count back in the 2000s. That was a big part of my work, was working with publishers like the New York Times and the Atlantic and how I met Jeff through Fast Company. These days, I tend to focus a lot more on healthcare companies, technology companies, large financial services companies, big enterprise companies that have complex content challenges. It's been a long-time goal of mine to be able to have a company with Jeff Eaton and our third business partner, Ethan Marcotte, and so working at Autogram was a real pleasure. One thing I want to do comment, there is a lot of need for UX help in healthcare and finance, so I'm very glad you're focusing on those two industries. We all have to use them, but uh, the user experience is typically pretty poor. Go ahead, Jeff. My name is Jeff Eaton. I, too, have been kicking around for about 25-plus years or so in the industry. I actually got my start very early on. I was a freelance writer, journalist, and I was working at a marketing company, and I was like, okay, I've done desktop publishing, as we called it back in the days. I was like, yeah, you know, sure, it's, it's... We need to make a home page for one of our marketing clients. I'll kick the tires on that. And, you know, that was probably around like 95, 96, something like that. But yeah, like by 96 or so, I was the guy at uh, the marketing company who sat next to the web server and which was just a Windows machine. And that's sort of how I dug in. And I sort of woke up like bleary eyed five years later. And I was like, whoa, I'm like writing database applications now. How did that happen? So my path was very much like, oh, yeah, okay, this is a tool we could do interesting communication stuff with. And over time, I just started to end up going deeper and deeper and deeper into the software development and architecture side of things. Particularly in those early days, a lot of that was just like, well, you need it to do something. So time to break out the power tools and, you know, start banging together something. But I ended up getting pretty deep into the world of content management systems and CMS design for probably about uh, the better part of 10 to 15 years or so. I worked as one of the uh, core developers and, and community members in the Drupal project. And I worked for one of the larger 
agencies in that space, Lullabot, and sort of built their content strategy practice. And that was mostly because as I'd spent all this time building out tools and building out the software for it, then as we started working on big projects, started realizing, boy, you know, turns out now the way these things, these projects end up failing, it's more about the planning that has gone into the actual content for them than just the underlying software. It's sort of like we all reached a point of maturity where the pendulum swung back and since then, I've really focused a lot on intersection of the underlying architecture and the editorial experience and the actual content structure and, you know, strategy that drive that stuff. So I feel like I've touched a lot of different points along the way. It's been fun. So you two have a little bit of experience in the internet and we have here kind of content and code side together. So there's a lot of subjects that you could talk on. We've chosen to talk together kind of about the problems with page builders. And from a strategy standpoint, first just define what do you consider in CMS and content management a page builder? I'd say that a page builder is any kind of tool that gives users something other than just plain markup. But what it's primarily focusing their energies on is like, constructing an HTML page fundamentally. There's a long history of sort of the pendulum swinging between HTML editors and then highly templated systems where, you know, what you get is a form and you enter in the title and the subtitle and the short subtitle and the SEO optimized title, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And then it gets piped into templates. And as CMSs started getting pushed into more and more flexibility and the demands being put on them went and were greater and greater, the tension between those two extremes, I think, really started showing. And it's always been there, but like, well, you use the templating system or you hire some designers and you tell them to bang out a custom special page from scratch. Those two endpoints have always been fairly solid in most every CMS. It's how the middle stuff gets handled that varies wildly. And the idea of page builders is basically like tool the CMS gives you to sort of click together a page. Well, excellent, Jeff. That was a great description of kind of a page builder. It sounds like most people are familiar with a page builder in this definition. What are the problems that you run into in a page building environment? Well, I like to preface it by saying the needs that drive people to use page builders aren't trivial. They're not like, oh, they just like messing around with stuff and tweaking things and they mess up the pages. It's not like that. It's, you know, generally people use them because they need to produce materials that fit a certain mold or what they're expected to create and publish varies widely enough that there isn't time to turn around a new developer tweaked template or something like that. It's like they usually start as like tool in the gaps. They're like, oh, well, we'll use them for those special pages or something like that. And then, you know, you wake up one morning and it's like, oh, our website is 70% special pages. How did that happen? It's easy to get sucked into that, but like the reasons for it are very good generally. And in particular, like with the growth of pattern oriented design languages, where more companies 
now have a library of like components that work inside of their design sort of lying around or documented or already built. So the temptation to like say, oh, hey, I'll bet we could just, you know, take that library and we could make that the things that people click together for the page. It's like, you know, cookies and milk or chocolate and peanut butter. How could this go wrong? And, you know, like on paper, it's great. And at a very small scale, it usually ends up working out fairly well. You know, people are like, oh, we just need to do like our special COVID section or our event landing page for this thing we've never done before. And we may never do again, but we want to make a, a thing for it. So they're like, oh, okay, well, we've got our hero module and we've got our three up module and our rotator module and our CTA and our form that you can fill out to subscribe module. The first several things you put together with that are like, this is fantastic. Why haven't we always done this? Why doesn't everything work like this? And especially in environments where like the engineering team there's a significant lift to getting them in and saying, oh, can you please add a new feature that we might only use once? That's a tough sell. The problem comes when that growth hits and, you know, you start realizing like, oh, hey, we don't actually have to bring in dev for, you know, this new chunk of stuff we'll roll out. We'll just use the page builder, put that together. And that sort of slippery slope of using it for more and more stuff means that you have more and more of your content in this sort of click together blocks fashion, which that in and of itself, not necessarily terrible. But then the second part comes in. One of the big advantages of like templating in, you know, structured content in a CMS, it isn't just like philosophical purity. It's that the CMS actually has ways of like interrogating that content. You can say things like, oh, bring up stuff that was published between these years or bring up articles where a person was interviewed versus just a podcast or something or whatever structure you've captured using the templates and the structured, you know, content formats, you can also find and filter and sort. And you can ask things like, oh, you know, how many product pages do we have? Or, oh, do we have old announcements about stuff laying around that we need to retire? I don't think that gets talked about as much as like the, oh, you can reuse it and publish it everywhere stuff. But like meat and potatoes day-to-day -day work, that's huge. That's what you lose once you start assembling those custom click together pages. Is that thing you built with the page builder a product page or just a page where you happen to talk about a product in the hero? Is it an important announcement or did it just use the important banner at the top because somebody wanted to make it pop? Like that meaningful semantic connection between what this is supposed to be, what it's used for, what's inside of it that goes away. And again, if you've got maybe a dozen of these pages and you know you just need them to fill gaps, that's not a problem. But like those two parts, the temptation to just let this kind of approach grow to encompass the whole site and the lack of that 
reusability and like interrogation capability with the CMS where you can look inside of it and see what's there. The end result of that is we've worked with so many clients who they used a tool like that. And two years later, they discover like, okay, we've got 2000 pages on our website and they're mystery meat. And we don't even know what we've got. What this whole section of our site is meant to even be is locked in the mind of whoever happened to make those pages. All we know is what they look like. And it's almost like we've reinvented Dreamweaver using React. So the problem it sounds like is with page builders is primarily scalability, the efficiency to scale. And Karen, is there anything you'd add to that? Yeah, I think that's some of it. You know, I recall observing that template became kind of a dirty word in CMS and web publishing. Like older generations of CMSs would hand the authoring staff or the marketing team or whoever was maintaining the website this package of templates that they had to try to fit their content into. And editorial teams reasonably, I think, chafed against the restrictions and limitations of the templates. I think, you know, any team that has had at least six months to bang on their system has figured out all the workarounds and different ways they can, like, use the template for something else. Or, you know, if I put this here, it makes it bold. So this is going to be my place where I put bold things. And so I do think that a lot of the component-oriented page-building design approaches are an effort to give editorial teams the flexibility that they want to be able to assemble pages in ways that, that make sense to them. And I think the problem is, it's like, anytime you do this, it's like the law of unintended consequences. It's like, okay, well, guess what? There turned out to be a lot of benefits of having templates. And sometimes you're going to still want them. But now that you have moved to this entirely component-driven page builder model, you don't even have the concept of templates anymore. Like, I think we work with clients all the time that have gone in on this model. And it, it becomes frustrating because the degree to which you have to specify every single thing on the page, rather than having some preset healthy defaults that it's like, but for all of the pages of this type, we're going to want to have these things on the page. So let the CMS provide those guardrails. Let the CMS or the authoring experience make it possible for people to create things within that system without having to start from first principles every time. And, you know, a lot of that is at scale, but it doesn't have to be a very big scale. I mean, even if you get up to the, what, more than a couple, few hundred pages, it starts to really get to be a problem. And we work with clients that have, I would say, a heck of a lot more than a couple hundred pages. Yes. There are some definite benefits to having global elements, whether it's components or template, where you could say, hey, if we need to change the logo everywhere, we can do it in one place rather than 357 places. I'd even say that this approach that like a lot of organizations because in part because of that overlap between like hey we've got this design system we've got a bunch of these react components that people have made or whatever boy it would really make things simple if we could just give this you know we'll build out cms modules to match each one of those and let people assemble them and again it's like hey that works great until the moment it doesn't and one of the moments where it doesn't is a redesign 
when suddenly your design system, it's like, oh, well, it's worked this way. It's like, oh, well, our calendar module has always had these three things, but we really want to change the way this works. And we're going to actually go in and make the calendar module work a little bit differently in our redesign. And suddenly what you discover is, oh, yeah, no, there's like 87 pages out there minimum that are using the calendar module and all the content has baked in stuff to populate that design component. And we could change that. We're going to have to go in and rewrite that content. We're going to have to go in and update it and multiply that out by however many different components you've got. And it's really, we see it's really common. I'm thinking of one particular financial services company that they were large enough that they they didn't have a design system. They had three design systems, that kind of a thing. But what they also realized was they had gotten to a place after several years where they had like sedimentary layers of components in their design system where like, this is the do not use deprecated as of 2020 hero. And this is the You can still kind of use it, but we're phasing it out hero. And this is the new up-to-date hero. And because of that sort of tight connection that ended up emerging between all the content they'd created previously and like these page building tools and the components, they couldn't just say, oh, we've updated the hero. They had to like leave that stuff in and think well, someday we'll schedule the time and the resources necessary to go in and migrate old content that uses and it's like this is what i remember doing giant like regular expression searches on all my html files to fix in the 90s no i mean i really have believed that we would be in a better place here going into 2024 but a lot of the migration and this is a very common problem because when you get a big site you don't just want to globally make changes that make you dump your old context a lot of that has seo value And it really will mess you up if you just suddenly, (laughs) it goes away. And even outside of pure SEO, content is an investment. Like it takes money to make it. Usually it's still delivering value long-term, but like you're investing money and it's like this store of time and energy that you've spent and SEO value, you know, on a particular page is one of the aspects of that. But like there's a bunch of different fronts on which just tossing it and redoing it is a huge investment. So I say you've got a person who's in this situation where they've maybe got a page builder and some other stuff and a lot of content. And they're realizing as they come up and expand that they're running into these kind of problems with efficiency and making changes. What's a good workaround strategy? What do you do? I mean, the answer to so much of this is governance, really. Like you definitely need like a working definition of how the components are supposed to work and work together. I think a number of teams probably do want to conduct an audit and try to identify, like, are they using page builders to develop pages that honestly should be templated and that use the enough, that are consistent enough and have enough of the same structure that it would be a lot more efficient for their team if they templatized it and, you know, handled that as a concept within the system that is agreed upon. I think that for teams going through a replatforming or a redesign or a migration, I think involves a fair amount of analysis and auditing to try to figure out, like, what do you have? What are we going to do with all of this? And 
I will give a plug for, I think, the value of content modeling as part of those kinds of redesigns and replatformings. It's an activity that often gets kind of ignored in favor of just trying to reproduce what is already in the system or just doing as much of a one-to-one mapping as possible. And as part of any replatforming, honestly, it's an opportunity to try to look at what you have and say, well, here's a chance to do it better. Like, can we dig ourselves out of some of the holes we've gotten ourselves into and move to a new system that's more effective? Now, you said governance and you said content modeling, which I'm sure made most of the marketers in here, their eyes started glazing over. This is typically a UX function, right? So if you are a marketer and you're like, yes, I've got these problems, but I don't know who to go to. Maybe you're a mid-level company and you don't have a UX professional in there. Who should own this? Well, so I'll actually jump in and say that Oftentimes, the kinds of patterns that emerge, like, oh, we got to assess this and we got to look at these, let's say, 200 special pages that we've accumulated over time. Every once in a while, we'll find a client where every one of those things is genuinely a special snowflake. And it's like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, you're just doing something wacky with every single one of these. Sometimes that's its own problem. But like if there is legitimately new and divergent and necessary stuff being done every single time, it's like, well, okay, that's just, that's how you all roll. I would say 90 plus percent of the time, what's actually going on is they are trying, experimenting, and finding what works. And then once they figure out what works, they're doing that like a template. The problem is, it never gets turned into a template. They just clone that page and there's like instructions passed around for like, oh yeah, go make sure you clone page 482 and change this and this and this and this and this and then you can go make your page. And that's exactly the kind of stuff. It's like, oh my gosh, you've done the hard part. You've like done like the R&D and testing and experimentation to determine what structure you need but then stops short of building the actual supporting tools to make that work. So like looking for those kinds of patterns is like ground zero with that kind of stuff because almost every single project we've ever worked on where this kind of stuff was in play, the people who did the day-to-day production could immediately say like, oh yeah, I, I don't know if it's all of our stuff, but I know of you know three types of things that we make with these. We've got our resources, we've got our case studies, we've got our this and our that. And you know, we always want those to be pretty much the same. There's some changes, but you know, it's like, okay, those need to be real honest to goodness templates, not just a thing you hurl content modules at to kind of make it look right. <laughs> Sure. So it sounds like there's some responsibility on those who are doing these tests, maybe in the marketing department to say, all right, now we've got a winner. Let's go and take this and have it made into a template so it can be more easily scaled, correct? Yeah. There's a degree of flexibility. Most modern CMSs, you can do things like say, hey, we want a templated page that has like these two slots where we can put in a customer quote or put in a video clip or something like that rather than it always being a cookie cutter. But that's very different than give me a big box that I can just stack things into and make my page. All right. So from the standpoint of, so somebody realizes they have this problem, perhaps marketing's in here and they say, whoops, yeah, we need a way to do scalability. So how do you consider this idea of building scalability into your digital strategy? From a technical perspective, like, so we're going to be setting things up for it. The first step 
has to be, there is a way to monitor what's being done with this page builder. Like if every time you ask, so what are people doing with it? You've got to go ask the developers and they've got to dig through the database and say, oh yeah, no, hero block 59 never gets used at all. If the only way you have is to like call up the devs, it's going to be a non-starter. You have to have some way, whether it's page in the CMS or some metadata you're passing along to your analytics system that says what's in use on the page, or you have to have some way to be able to track what are we doing on these pages? What's in use? What's not in use? What purposes are we using it for? Putting that in place early is a lot easier than planning exactly what structures you'll need and what things you'll want. But making sure that you have some way of keeping track of what's going on will give you visibility into what's happening. And most of the companies we find who have that like, oh my gosh, we're buried in thousands of pages and we don't even know what they are. They didn't have any mechanism for that. And they were blindsided by it when a redesign came or when their new design system version rolled out or they wanted to change CMSs or something like that. And having that visibility is a huge boost at the very least you're not starting from scratch when trying to figure out what's going on. So you're talking about documentation here of what's being done. And, and by the way, this is something that besides a usability and scalability benefit, there's a huge SEO benefit to documenting, like you're saying, because anytime anything is changed, whoever's in charge of your SEO wants to see that and see, did that affect anything in our search rankings? And I want to look back and see if there's a correlation between a change and a either an increase or a decrease in ranking. So there's multiple benefits to that kind of documentation you're talking about. And then even being able to compare and contrast things like, hey, do pages where we're doing these kinds of structural and patterns perform better than pages where we're not? Like you've got a built-in experimentation system there without even having to layer A-B testing or whatever. You can say like, hey, we know what's there and we can look at how they perform differently. And I think you can also look at the site speed as a factor. I do think one of the risks of page builders is that you're likely carrying around a lot more cruft on the page that will increase how long it takes to load, and that's going to affect your search engine rankings. And your user experience. And the user experience, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, you can optimize things as much as you want, but if the page takes too long to load, you're not getting any value out of it. And that's not necessarily like... The concept of a page builder makes that automatic, but the way that these things are usually built means it's inevitable that like somebody puts 96 toppings onto the ice cream cone and now you've got a page that takes 12 seconds to load. It's pulling in six video libraries and, you know, Instagram feeds and, you know, stuff like that. It's like that stuff doesn't come for free, but it's easy to overlook the cumulative impact of that build your own effect. <laughs> Very good points. Well, let me go over one more question in strategy and then we'll transition to tactics. What do you see are the most common strategic mistakes in websites outside of using page builders without templates and then scaling and realizing, whoops. That's a big one. There are so many delicious problems to choose from. I think one of the biggest strategic challenges that I have seen consistently across my career working with enterprise clients and one that I think pretty much everyone in a big company would agree with is that the siloing ownership 
web digital content and the platforms for publishing tends to create a lot of inefficient workflows internally, as well as often suboptimal user experience. And it's just very common for you know teams to be like, okay, well, comms owns this and marketing owns this and sales owns this and IT owns these pieces, but not these pieces. And that fragmentation is really what often drives the capacity that teams have to do their work. I complain about the fact that people are often wasting a lot of time on inefficient workflows that are driven by technology, that the content management system is not set up in a way that's intuitive for them or it's cumbersome or they have to add in, you know, they have to do a lot of busy work in the system that just to make the system work. But, you know, the more I do this, honestly, a lot of the inefficiencies are more about internal process. And that internal process is often driven by the fact that the website is siloed. Ownership and decision-making often has to touch multiple teams. And there's not a lot of vision or leadership from the top. It very much is a fragmented system that doesn't have, I don't want to say centralized, but like it's a zero-sum game kind of thing. It's like, well, if we do this for you, then we're not going to have time to do this for us. So why would we do that for you kind of thing? As opposed to a holistic view of this is the experience that we want to deliver for our customers or for our audience. What do we need to do to make that happen? So I'm sure you run into this a lot in your career, Karen. How do you overcome those fiefdoms? Those like, this is ours, that's theirs. So I spoke on a panel last week at the Veterans Administration, and the guy who organized it brought in both people who worked in government and then people who worked as consultants. And you know, I'm always very clear when I speak as a consultant that I don't work in-house. Like My perspective is always very much from the lens of I'm an outsider coming in to try to identify issues or help organizations work through and get to a better place. And so I think sometimes on that particular situation, I is one of the scenarios where I do think bringing in outside consultants can be helpful because we're allowed to say things that other people can't say. And that was something I learned very, very early in my career as a consultant. You know, I was like, why are they even hiring us? And, you know, the managing director of the firm was like, well, because we are allowed to come in and have a perspective that other people in the company might share, but they would have to expend their social capital on trying to advance that as an idea. And it's risky for them. You know, they have to maintain their internal relationships, whereas you know, outsiders can come in and be like, well, but from our experience, from the analysis we've done and the research we've done on competitors, we think you should do it this way. And then we're the ones who are taking ownership of the recommendation and not even if the person who brought us in is the one who also supports that. It's still something that can help ideally, I mean, in the best case scenario, like build alignment from different groups within the organization that they actually do have shared values around their goals for the customer experience and their goals for the website. And it's just up to us to say, okay, but this isn't an us, you know, a you versus them thing. This is about you both working together to solve the problem. Matt Dixon actually talks about that kind of issue internally in this book called The Challenger Customer. And he talks about it from a sales perspective as a problem that sales people have when they come in to try to get consensus across these multiple silos or fiefdoms. But just from an internal standpoint too, it's good for them to know, hey, this is the issue we have. 
here is the benefit of bringing in this outside resource to try to corral us all and create uh, this sense of alignment on the things that are most important across all of these different fiefdoms, you could say. Jeff, did you want to comment anything more on that or should we go to tactics? Agree wholeheartedly. Well, let's jump to tactical then. So let's talk about, here's a common issue you have in trying to align these different fiefdoms of say technical and content. How do you maximize SEO in engaging web design? Because you have on one hand, you have your content people who are generally like, we want to make it look beautiful, you know, have this great experience. And the SEO people usually are your technical people who are like, well, if you do that, it's going to lower our page speed. You know, it's going to be something that's not going to have the right SEO fields in there. How do you find that balance, that alignment in SEO when you're designing? So, I mean, I would say that I'm usually on the side of finding and developing and sort of honing a really good content model that captures like the communicative intent of the content, not just like, oh, we're going to need some text here and we're going to need an image there, but like what's going on with this kind of thing that we publish? What does it need in order to communicate the messages we've got and stuff like that? Like at least in the way that I tend to approach things, like that's what drives content modeling far more than what database fields are necessary. That comes into play, but like it's really about constructing a well-understood sort of model of what particular kinds of messages and information are all about. And again, I'm not an SEO specialist kind of guy. So I may be just, you know, somebody might slap their forehead and say, oh my God, rookie mistake when I say this. But I tend to think that the kind of like technical SEO stuff that you're talking about is well aligned with that kind of structural modeling work. Figuring out if you already have a good model and a good understanding of what a product benefits page needs to communicate, the translation from that to SEO metadata is way easier than the translation from, let's say, we got some pages to how do we SEO optimize that stuff. So at least from my perspective, that kind of SEO work is something that I think goes hand in hand with, with effective content development. Because at that point, you should have the majority of what you're going to be exposing from an SEO perspective already understood and inherent in the content that you've been developing. And one of the benefits of well-structured content is there are ways to pull that stuff and take the list of product benefits or the associated product or any sales that are currently going on for this product and expose the schema.org metadata and the open graft stuff and you know all those bits that I mean, honestly, are cycling and changing on a technical basis, like monthly as different companies figure out, oh, if we could pull this out, we could do something cool in our search engine or in our product or whatever. So like keeping up with how the information needs to be exposed effectively to search engines, to apps, to social networks, to whatever, 
is orders of magnitude easier if the work of figuring out like what's the communicative intent of this thing what are the elements that contribute to that and are part of it and if that thinking is already sort of mapped to a content model that you know follows that kind of thinking the devil's in the details you're still going to have to do the work but you've already got a system that makes translating hey we want to do a new page into yeah this will work a lot easier yeah this is interesting so again it goes back to you know having this structure in place before you have the page-to-page conversation about seo so used again content modeling there just give a quick definition of what you mean by content modeling to a, a layman So content modeling is basically just the process of looking at what kinds of things you are creating and publishing, like what different kinds of content you're making, what different properties they have, like everything we have always has a title and a summary and an accompanying image of some kind. Products also have a weight and a price and a list of benefits, each of which is maybe a sentence or two long. And their purpose is to make sure that people see one of their own needs represented when they're reading. And from a technical level, that's like, oh, okay, text, text, image, text, number, no problem. But from a conceptual level, that also maps to things like, oh, okay, well, what should I put in that field? What meaningfully does that, you know, is supposed to go in there? If you've got product benefits, typing big into that field may satisfy the CMS's requirement that you have at least one word in a product feature, but it's not getting at what you mean when you say a benefit of our product. That sort of conceptual idea of the things we publish, what properties they have, and how those properties go together to like satisfy the messaging intent of that kind of thing, and then how they relate to each other. Like we have a product, and we have a product line, and we have a, you know, a market, and you know they connect to each other in these ways or things like that. That's basically content modeling, you know, figuring that map of what we're making and communicating out. And most CMSs have some way to like turn that into what you do in the CMS. But it's, you know, it varies what the details look like or, you know, how flexible they are in one area versus another. Excellent. Great answer. Well, let me switch to one more tactical insight. Should we be building our websites from a mobile perspective first? Is that still valid? Now, I remember that call coming out, you know, maybe 10 years ago. Is that still the case? Well, I mean, I think like mobile first has come to take on a bit of a mythological status of an approach, which I don't actually think anyone who practices the work regularly believes literally the way that it's described. So uh, Nielsen Norman Group just put out an article talking about how like mobile first design hurts desktop. And, uh, you know, they had a lot of examples of links being weird and, you know, there's just too much space on the desktop page. And to me, I look at that and I'm like, well, this isn't a problem with mobile first design. This is just badly executed design. And there's nothing inherent in mobile or mobile first or responsive web design that says your desktop pages shouldn't be 
as well thought through as the mobile experience. Like there are absolutely techniques that you can use to make that happen. It's, you know, you're not setting the breakpoints appropriately and you're not thinking about all of the in-between scenarios where, you know, things might need to adjust. When we talk about doing design projects, I think we pretty much would always start with both a mobile and a desktop view, or, you know, we, we would say it would be like the smallest screen view and the largest screen view. Design them kind of both at the same time and be thinking through the system of how the different pieces are going to interact and what the priority should be. But I guess from my perspective, using mobile as a lens to, as like a forcing function to say, okay, but like what really are the most important things that we need to have on this page? Because someone's not going to be able to see all these things. So let's put them in a stacked list so we can have a conversation about priority. I think that's a very healthy thing for a team to go through. Does that mean then that you don't think through the rest of the design? No, that's not it at all. I don't understand. Like that to me, that's not a critique of mobile first. It's like, that's just you not doing your job. And I think like a lot of it, understanding like the historical arc. I think Karen and I were both, you know, neck deep in big web projects in the area when people made a website and they picked how wide the website was going to be. And that was one of the big early decisions. Sure. That was it. That was, man, the shift from like 1024 to 1280 was a big deal. Like, for, and especially in that era, like, change the ad placements and sizes. Like, it really was a, a major decision. And now it's sort of laughable. Like, oh, <laughs> you thought it was a piece of paper. But I think one of the fascinating things was that when mobile started arriving, you got like, oh, well, we've got some sort of weird m.ourdomain.com website and our tech people have figured out some way to pipe our website through it and spit out something that is vaguely readable. <laughs> and, you know, like yeah, that arc was very there. And then you had companies that were like, oh, no, we've invested tons of money into building this completely parallel website for the mobile user, whoever that creature is. And like, I think the idea of particularly once responsive design arrived and the idea that, well, maybe you make a website and it could perform for both. Like that was heady stuff. But the whole idea of mobile first, I think was just like Karen was saying, that forcing function of for an industry that had invested so much time and like essentially a generation or two of thinking into you build your website. And then if you've got the budget and you want to be fancy, you figure out how to make a mobile thing saying mobile first was like a very bold shot across the bow say, no, how does it work in the most constrained environment? What are you doing there to prioritize? Have you thought about how it should work there? And like, it is an extreme kind of statement, you know, but I think understanding that context in which it arrived helps understand like somebody kind of had to like stick a stake in the ground and say, by God, no. And I think it really helped anchor the idea that mobile was a genuinely important lens through which to see things. Today, like the prominence of mobile phones means that it's entirely feasible for a company to build a website and never 
really think through what happens on a big screen, which is such a bizarro inversion of that scenario. But like, it's not that's the advocated position. It's that, hey, think through what you're doing here and how it looks in all the context it's likely to live, not just the one that our designers spend 95% of their time looking at. Good point. Well, let me transition and ask a few kind of personal and career level questions. So I asked this of every one of my guests, and it's very insightful to me. If you could go back in a time machine, both of you, to the very beginnings of your career, way back in the 90s, what piece of advice, if you could give one piece of advice to yourself then outside of buying Bitcoin or Apple stocks or things like that, what piece of advice would you give to yourself? I think for me, something that I think about a lot is, especially as my career progresses, the value of networking and maintaining a network of people that you're in contact with. I think that that's how people get jobs, right? Like how you, especially as you advance in your career, like that's really the way that you make connections and stay and not just make connect, no, not just in a mercenary sense. Like that's how you stay in touch with what's going on in the field is knowing other people who are doing interesting things in the field and staying up with them. It's not the same as just maintaining good relationships with your coworkers. I will say I've been independent for so long that I'm sort of forced to maintain a network, but you're investing in your personal relationships with people, whether they're you know fellow employees or not, or just people in the industry, is something that I think becomes ever more important the more you progress. And I am grateful for all of the colleagues and connections that I have. But I think if I could go back to my early career, you know, I might have told myself not to spend 10 years working at the same company. I might have said, like, move on and, you know, make, meet more people and stay more focused on keeping up with people like from grad school or from my early career that are doing interesting things in the field, because you never know where those relationships will go. Absolutely. That's great advice. Jeff, what about you for you? Uh, I would say always listen for that sense that there's a problem that just isn't being solved right. Like we just feels really weird and wrong that we're having to do so much to get this problem solved. And it just feels wrong. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean, and this is where the advice to my former self comes in, that doesn't necessarily mean like get on your horse and start tilting at windmills and, you know, build an open source project from scratch to solve that problem or whatever. You can burn through a scary amount of life <laughs> doing that. However, what I think is the what has always proved to be the best next step after I get that sort of sense of this is too complicated what we're trying to do here, is to look outside of the community that I'm in and look at how other practices and other disciplines have talked about and tried solving similar problems. Like, how has this team tackled things that are adjacent, like that are kind of like that? It's very rare that I'll find somebody who's just flat out solved it. But what I'll often find is oh man, there's like a huge pool of thought of like a decade worth of really, really good work that's been done over here in this other community. 
they just do it in a different context and they talk about it using some different language. And I was completely blind to all the good thinking that was going on over there. And I feel like I don't, I don't have a great soundbite way of summing that thing up, but that idea of always looking around for what other communities of practice and other like disciplines are tackling and what we can learn from that in terms of angles to approach problems or ways they've learned to describe some tough nut that's at the core of an issue we face. There's so much to be gained from there, even if, you know, it doesn't mean gallivanting off and firing up a fresh open source project for fun. No, I think that's great advice. I mean, I think that's why agencies will always be something that is very valuable because typically they work with many industries many different communities. And so their minds are just more open to different ways to solve the problem. Whereas when you're at a brand, your whole career, it can get very easy to get laser focused, but have the blinders on and you miss all the work, great work that's being done parallel to you. But if you could bring it in, you might even become a disruptor. If you could simply take all their work, bring it into your industry and make some breakthroughs there. So yeah, great advice, both of you. Tell me now about Autogram. Who's the kind of people you like to work with what are the kind of projects? What's your special sauce? And how do people get a hold of you? So I'd say our special sauce is probably um, tangly, complicated content that's closely connected to the core business of an organization. You know, it's we've worked with marketing teams. We've worked with different groups inside of large organizations and stuff like that. But when there's an understanding inside of an organization that the content that they create and publish and utilize is actually a core part of their business and what they do, there's a real interest in and willingness to tackle it in different ways, I think. And that, that works really well with the kind of stuff, the kind of approaches we use. Another one that I think is an important angle is um, the interest in like the emerging design system and like, you know, structured content space. We do a lot of work with that. If somebody's still out there just cranking out HTML pages and they don't see a problem with that, we may not well have a lot to offer them. You know, if they would like to hire us to do some interesting stuff, we're happy to. But like a lot of our work is on figuring out how to make good solid systems and processes, workflows to both make their content production and their, you know, metrics and the processes by which their design and communication systems grow and evolve, how that stuff works and how that pays off for them in the long term as a business. That's the kind of stuff that I feel like we we really love sinking our teeth into. Karen, did I just go off into a crazy land? <laughs> no, I think that you're exactly right. I also think that like really our sweet spot is organizations that are planning a major CMS replatforming. So content management system that's end of life and they are either evaluating new platforms to move to or have made the decision about which new platform to move to and are looking for guidance on you know, strategy and planning for how are we going to think about how do we migrate, how do we restructure our content, how do we think about updating our process and workflow and the roles in the CMS. Like We have a, a chance to do something, you know, hopefully better with this new platform. So let's bring in Autogram to help them figure it out. Same with a major redesign. Although at this point, I tend to think that most redesigns are probably 
significantly driven by need to replatforming to replatform like CMS end of life, and that spurs the desire for the redesign. But in some cases, there's a change in brand or maybe a merger and acquisition is another scenario where we get brought in where you have content that needs to be restructured in some way and you want someone to help think think that through. Yeah, like we're, you can email us, go to autogram.is and that's our website. Let us know. Excellent. One last question. When you're doing these evaluations, you're trying to help them set up the structuring for moving from one CMS to another. Do you ever set in place, like help them benchmark how bad it is right now so that you can then afterwards say, here's the improvement we just delivered. What metrics do you do for that? Yeah, that's definitely our goal is to have a variety of you know metrics about the current performance of the site and clearly defined goals for what they should be able to do better in the future, however that gets measured. Jeff, I think you probably want to say something about this. The amount of time that it takes to produce is one of those things that's naturally a part of that. I think the first presentation that Karen and I ever did, maybe the second, was probably about 12 years ago, we did a talk specifically about improving editorial experience because of just the cost amorti- you know the amortized cost of lost create you know content creation time over the lifespan of a website is huge and i think there's definitely a sense within organizations that developer time is valuable and editorial time is like oh but you'll just update that on every page it'll take you like 15 minutes or something and that when you build that out at scale is not true and I would say the other thing that we often look into, other than like the usual stuff of like, well, how is each page performing? How is, you know, what kind of contribution does certain messaging make to, you know, conversions, stuff like that. Other than those kinds of things, we also try to look at how effectively is content actually being reused inside of the structure of the site? Like if you're investing time and energy into building out case studies, where does the information in that case study make sense to surface it in other places? Where does that messaging, those quotes or whatever, where can that be doing important work around the rest of your website where it's not? Like the biggest tragedy we've seen is clients who have like deep archives of high quality content and they rely on inbound organic search traffic for it, but literally have one link to that piece of content on their page and that's it. And five views of the content in the last three years. And you have to paginate to get to it. Yeah, the cost per view is very high for this content. That's really, really important. Actually, this last year, Forrester did a in-depth study with uh, content.ai, where headless CMS, where they basically said, here's all the benefits. And they tried to go in and monetize, you know, the benefits of that over a three-year period with several enterprise-level clients. Very interesting information. And I think a lot of people out there, they know it's a big problem, but they kind of don't want to quantify it because they're worried about how much it's costing them. And so they're like, this is going to look bad if we quantify it. But really, I think that is the key to making these kind of strategic changes that you're talking about. You know, hey, let's put in place this governance. Let's do this content modeling. Let's make these decisions instead of a page builder of doing things with these templates is based upon realizing how 
big of a content problem it is and monetarily the effect it has on your organization and reaching your goals. And so I really I applaud Forrester and content.ai for going in and trying to tackle that. And I think the more agencies like Autogram can go in and quantify that stuff, help people understand it, the more people will say content is not just an expense. This is an investment, like you said. We have to put in money to maintain it. We have to protect it because this is something that delivers constant value to us and it takes constant expense. And unless we do it right, we're shooting ourselves in the foot on the value and we're paying way more than we need to on the expense. Absolutely. 100%. Excellent. So appreciate your time, Jeff and uh, Karen. We went over time today, but you had so many good content, suggestions, both strategically and tactically. And uh, I think we'll probably have to do this again at some point, but really appreciate your time, both of you. Great. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. Cutting Edge Web Content Development is brought to you by Butter CMS. To find out how you can build better with Butter, stop wasting dev time, and free your marketers from your legacy CMS, visit buttercms.com. Also, make sure to search for Cutting Edge Web Content Development in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Butter CMS, thank you for listening.